0: It's Wednesday, August 7th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Earlier this week, the United States took the rare step of formally labeling China as a currency manipulator. This comes after increased trade tensions, as the president also decided to impose additional tariffs on Chinese goods. Talks to end the trade war have repeatedly failed and the new tariffs are set to take place on September 1st if no deal is made. Doug Palmer, senior trade reporter at Politico, joins us to explain what it means when China devalues their money. Next, we get to talk to one of the best skip tracers in the world. A combination bill collector, bounty hunter, and private investigator, a skip tracer finds people and things that have disappeared and don't want to be found. Most people would be very surprised to find out that the best bounty hunter in the world is only 411. Skip tracer Michelle Gomez specializes in hard to locate recoveries and joins us to talk about how she got involved in the world of skip tracing, some of the methods she uses to hunt people down, and one of her biggest cases tracking down Ryan Mullen, who at one point was on the FBI's most wanted list. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: We can't just go and make an even deal with China. We have to make a much better deal with China because right now they have a very unfair playing field and I'm turning it around. We have been treated so badly and I don't blame China. I blame our past leaders, our past presidents. Joining
0: us now is Doug Palmer, senior trade reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Doug. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Oscar. The United States has taken a rare step of formally labeling China as a currency manipulator. Oddly enough, the last time that this was done was in the early 90s, and it was also for China. Doug, help us out here. What does this mean? What does this new designation mean for China?
1: Well, it's sort of just calling China out for its for its currency practices, although some people think that it's a bit out of date at this point. This was really more of an issue during the mid-2000s when uh, many people in the business community in Washington and many lawmakers on Capitol Hill were charging that China's currency was undervalued by something like 15 to 40%, depending on your calculation. And they were saying that that really gave China a big trade advantage because by having an undervalued currency, that meant its products were much cheaper for American businesses to import. And um, conversely, um, our products going over there, which were much more expensive. Because if you have a weak currency, you can buy less with each unit of that currency. So the weaker the currency is, the, the less you can buy. And at the same time, though, if your product is priced in that weak currency, and somebody from a country with a strong currency, like, like the dollar, you can buy a lot of product. So people were arguing that China's currency practices were contributing to the trade imbalance. Beijing kind of got the message and over time began appreciating its currency to the degree that people don't really think it's the problem that it once was. But President Trump has sort of latched onto the idea that China is a currency manipulator and during the
0: campaign was accusing China of currency manipulation. And he's all about keeping promises, and that was one of the things that he very much did promise that that he was going to do that very early on as president. Uh, so he's you know they're finally getting around to it. Are there right. are there any type of penalties? As you said, it's kind of symbolic almost. But are there any penalties related to this? I know the United States is going to work with the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. But what happens if they get involved?
1: Well, um, n- n- not much. I mean, um, I've. Been talking to a few people about that today, and the consensus of the the people that I talked to was that if the U.S. goes to the IMF, the IMF is kind of unlikely to back them up on this point. You know, just as part of their regular practices, they put out reports on the foreign exchange practices of countries, and they already did that earlier this this summer. And they didn't. They looked at China's currencies along with many other countries, and they didn't really raise any red flags about about what it was doing at that at that time. Um, so I, I don't think the 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 U.S. is going to get a lot of support from from the IMF. But this is a, a the type of move. That will go down well with a lot of Trump supporters. And, um, you know, there's a lot of businesses in certain sectors like the steel industry, people who compete a lot, you know, kind of head-to-head with
0: Chinese imports that would probably welcome the designation and say that it's it's overdue. Let's talk about the other side of this, the ongoing trade war that we have with China. Last week, the president decided to impose another round of tariffs, 10% on $300 billion worth of Chinese goods. Uh, they were not very happy. And China has said that they're going to suspend U.S. farm purchases now. And I mean, that's going to be another blow to U.S. farmers and ranchers.
1: Yeah, that's right. There was another round of trade talks last week in Shanghai. And when the U.S. negotiators came back from that and talked to President Trump about it, he appeared, you know, very frustrated, seemed very frustrated um, that these these negotiations were basically stuck and that China wasn't making any new proposals to address this long list of concerns that um, the U.S. has. So he went ahead with this decision to impose a new 10% tariff on $300 billion worth of Chinese goods, which is basically the remainder of goods that we haven't yet
0: hit with, with tariffs. What are some of the sticking points? Because the negotiations have been going back and forth for a long time now. Nothing's been reached. Are there a few specific things or is it just a overall kind of failure to come to any type of consensus?
1: The U.S. is um, asking for China to make a lot of uh, changes in, in just the way it manages its economy. You know, it's a very um, state-run economy and they have, um, uh, they provide quite a bit of assistance for their state-owned enterprises and they you know maintain policies that that give their domestic companies a leg up over foreign companies there's just a lot of things that there's kind of widespread consensus in the business community that are that are unfair but you know I think it's kind of hard for the for the administration even with the threat of these tariffs to basically uh, persuade China to change its you know kind of state-run economic model so people are kind of getting glum about the about the prospects for the two sides to reach a deal right Although, yeah. you know, it, it,
0: it, they could still pull something out of, the, out of their hat. And then things like this, uh, labeling them currency manipulators gets them angry. So, you know, <laughs> where's the uh, the will to want to negotiate a little bit more? The last thing I wanted to touch on was, you know, we were talking about how this kind of hurts U.S. farm I- exports, things like that. You had some numbers in your article about how forecasts show that farm exports to China uh, for this fiscal year are going to be $6.5 billion. And that's down a whole heck of a lot from what it was last year and before that.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, China has been one of the biggest markets for U.S. farmers, uh, particularly for soybeans. I mean, soybeans probably accounted for something like $14 billion out of something like $21 billion of annual sales to that country. And um, you know, soybean sales to to China have taken a have taken a big hit because of the trade war. But you know, other industries are also impacted. Um, dairy producers aren't selling as much as they have in the past, and the U.S. pork industry is being hurt. Because they see a huge um, opportunity because a big part of the Chinese hog or pork industry old the hog herd has been you know wiped out by African swine fever, so they 've had to to cull a lot of their a lot of their hogs and China is a big pork consumer and so the US pork industry would be like to would like to be selling them pork but they are facing uh, retaliatory duties on their pork exports to the United States or to China so they're not getting much headway there.
0: Well, I mean it's an ongoing problem. We'll see if we ever get to a deal, but it, it looks like it's going to take some time. Doug Palmer, senior trade reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us it's my pleasure, Oscar. Thank you.
2: This one was special. As I was doing my investigation, I realized that he was in a, a form of a triangle. He had help. And when you're in a crime or you're involved with a crime, you always have legs that help you. And I call them legs because those are the people that aid you in your crime. And they're probably also profiting... From the involvement as well but as I drew closer to him I realized that there was money involved and money is at the end of
0: all evil joining us now is Michelle Gomez she's a mother bounty hunter skip tracer and private investigator one of the best in the world thank you very much for joining us Michelle
2: hi thank you for contacting me
0: very excited to talk about you Uh, I came across your story in an article on wired.com and it was entitled, The World's Best Bounty Hunter is 4'11", Here's How She Hunts. And it, right away, it struck my eye. Uh, usually, when you think of a bounty hunter, you think of maybe Dog the Bounty Hunter. You know, he had that TV show. Uh, you know, Big Burly Guy, something like that. So, uh, the first question I want to ask is that people must underestimate you quite a bit, just based off of how how tall you are.
2: Uh, yes, they do. Um, they're quite surprised when I do show up. Um, I usually aid a lot of bounty hunting agencies, uh, bondsmen um, that have already, you know, that are working on cases that need uh, skip work done to locate their fugitives, and I usually take over when they've already exhausted all their means or exhausted as many agencies as possible uh, that try to give it a try, and they finally call me, you know. Um, <laughs> I don't know why they don't call me to begin with, but um, I guess they, they live and learn.
0: You have a company called Unlimited Recoveries. Uh, You do like to specialize in these hard-to-locate recoveries and cases that others can't solve. Tell us a little bit about how you get involved in skip tracing specifically. This is finding people or things that have disappeared on purpose. Uh, A lot of times, as you mentioned, somebody will contact you saying, we need help tracking this thing down, and that's where you step in. How do you get involved in this?
2: Well, pretty much I get recommended by word of mouth. And now since the Wired magazine was published, uh, I am well known throughout the world. And I do get uh, requests from uh, places such as Dubai, Canada, Australia, um, Switzerland, the Belgium, you know, everywhere. And it is overwhelming, but I get referred by word of mouth as well. And it, they are the cases that are hard to locate. They are either cold cases or they're extreme uh, cases where the jump is is fresh the asset is fresh where they need to be located for court date
0: how, how did you get started a, though because I mean not a lot of people say you know what I want to be a bounty hunter or I want to I want to be a skip tracer how, do, how did you come into the field how did you start this out
2: well back in 2000 2001 I would say um, I was introduced into the world of skip tracing and uh, there's a lot of details in between of how I got started but Unfortunately, it was not a good uh, way of breaking into the skip tracing world. Um, I was in a domestic uh, situation myself or my, or my ex boyfriend. Um, he hurt me. Um, he hit me and I took it one time, pressed charges. Uh, the person who aided me introduced me to the world of skip tracing and the repossession company. Um, and that's when the world of skip tracing opened up. To me, and I honed a skill that I never knew I had. I thought skip tracing was illegal. Like, what is? That? I mean, the word even sounds illegal, <laughs> you know. Does, and yeah. I'm like, what is skip tracing? <laughs> he's like, yeah, you want to become a skip tracer? And I'm like, uh, that doesn't sound um, like legal, you know. And he's like, come on, let's go. So I went. I opened my mind to something new. I already had a job in a in a, an attorney's office in a law firm, and I said, well, if you can match my rate, I'm in. And I was introduced. I was trained by somebody very good. And 16 years later, I have unlimited recovery.
0: Tell us some of the methods of a skip tracer. I mean, you're almost like a detective. You are you really are a detective. Um, yeah, uh, uh, One of the methods uh, you mentioned is it's all about the SITS, which S-I-T-S, Shelter, Income, Transportation, and Social Contact. These are the primary ways you track some someone down with.
2: Yes. We all need shelter, either it'd be a nice home, a box, little hideout, or whatever. We all need shelter in some format. So we, I always try to hone in on where they're gonna be at, who's, who's helping them, who's providing shelter for the fugitive. Um, income, either help from a family, somebody's aiding them, somebody's uh, protecting them. Um, transportation, they're either jumping on a bus, a taxi, bike, or uh, on foot, somebody's helping them with transportation, And their social media outfit, you know, they're always involved with social media. But some of these fugitives are already on the run. They don't want to be on the social media platforms. But each one of us, I'm talking about each one of us in this whole world, we all have a FIT program. But these people that I go after, they're in a different platform. They're way ahead of the agencies that are looking for them. They're way ahead of us in the matter of income, of how they're going to make money. Who's going to also take them from point A to point B. Again, we all have a SITS program. It's just, can you identify yours? Right. If somebody were to locate you, how would they locate you? Have you ever thought about that?
0: I'm probably pretty easy to find based off of the podcast and all my social media stuff. So I, I well, we
2: all have to be careful how we um, display our SITS program. Right. Because uh, one of these days, you know, many of us can be on the run. <laughs> I, hope,
0: <laughs> I hope that you, Michelle Gomez, are not after me one day. Let's talk, no. about, let's talk about Ryan Mullen. He was on the FBI's Most Wanted list in 1999. And I'm sure you have a ton of amazing stories, but this is, has to be one of the top gets. He was on the run for a long time. He was accused of stealing a huge yacht, uh, stealing millions of dollars. Uh, Tell us about him and how you tracked him down.
2: Well, Ryan Mullen was one of my big cases, Um, but this one was special. As I was doing my investigation, I realized that he was in a a form of a triangle. He had help. And when you're in a crime or you're involved with a crime, you always have legs that help you. And I call them legs because those are the people that aid you in your crime. And they're probably also profiting uh, from the involvement as well. But as I drew closer to him, I realized that there was money involved, and money is at the end of all evil there. Exactly. Um, he had people um, in the mm-hmm. uh, a logo outfit. He had somebody involved with that, somebody that had a lot of resources on the ground in Louisiana. So I began digging and digging and digging. I mean, I turned over every rock possible. And in investigations, you have to do your due diligence. Even if you come into a dead end, you got to go over that sheet and and see what you miss because we all miss things. We're not perfect. I was determined to find this guy. I was determined to find everybody involved with his crime. And my goal was to find the yacht. I went through NOAA. I went through all the Harbor Masters. I went through everything. I was already drawing close to where he was at. I said, okay, he has to be here because according to the Harbor Master, there was a last fuel uh, drop. And then I trace that field drop back to somebody. I'm very good at solving puzzles. So with that skill and putting things together through my engineering background,
0: I was not going to let it beat me, you know. Michelle, that that puzzle solving thing really came in handy because part of the problem with tracking Ryan Mullen down was that he was using a ton of different aliases. Names that were yes. slightly different. So it was hard to pinpoint him uh, you know, as you're mentioning the SITS program, it was hard to uh, pinpoint him anywhere because the aliases were slightly different, All slightly over the same, place. exactly. So that was one of the things that was frustrating in tracking him down.
2: Well, I had a lot of SITS for him. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was able to locate him in the Bayou Tash at a plantation with a very wealthy man. And I, as I approached the location, I spotted the boat, the yacht, and Called the police. It was it was an exciting day for everyone, but mostly for my client. You know, we got, he got his asset back. The, the company got the asset back, and um, along the means of that, he was there and he tried to uh, change his name in front of me. You know, he's like, "That's my picture, but that's not my name." And what? I'm like, "Which name is it, Ryan? You go by so many."
0: When he knew he was caught, what was his reaction?
2: He looked relieved. Like a big sigh came out of him. Like it, it was, it was over. Like he was, like he was tired of running.
0: Wow.
2: You know, sometimes with these fugitives that get caught, like they just like, okay, I can sleep now. Yeah, I
0: mean, they're always looking over the shoulder, uh, hoping that they're not going to get caught. I mean, it's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating job, and, and I could talk to you forever about this. We're actually going to be seeing a lot more of you. You're currently working on two projects right now, uh, some documentaries and some other stuff uh, based on your life and, and the work that you do. When when can we expect to see some of these?
2: Uh, very soon. We're in production already. I'm going to be flying out to a location. Let's just say, I should give this name out, New Mexico. Wow. And um, I'm very excited to do this project. It's just, there are cold cases of about 60 murders that took place. And I'm looking to um, find some bones in the ground. And that's about as much I can tell you.
0: I mean, that really is amazing. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Michelle Gomez, uh, one of the best skip tracers in the world, mother, bounty hunter, the whole nine. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you very much for calling.
0: That's it for today. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Brooke Peterson and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.